Hey, good morning, UCC, and welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget, uh, just say hello in our comment section of our new website. One of the reasons why we chose this website, apart from its technical difficulties to get everything up and going, is because we want to engage with people uh, as best as we're able to. So just the kind of interaction, kind of creating kind of a lobby. Remember the church lobby when we used to, at, at uh, the Princess Twins, uh, when everyone's saying hello and and all that. That's the idea behind it. And also, don't forget, too, that if as you're watching this, if you want prayer, we have a prayer team, a digital prayer team that can pray with you. So you can just click on the pray button, and somebody from the team will uh, have a private chat with you uh, to pray with you as well, too. And again, one of the ways we're trying to make... Um, this whole experience, less uh, monologue and more dialogue as much as possible. Um, and if, for those of you who are joining us maybe for the first time or are, are relatively new, I've gotten a couple of emails and some comments from people that uh, people from a little bit of, uh, further away are able to join us. And I'm so glad for that. You know, the pandemic has upset church life as, as, as the traditional church way of understanding things, but it's also given us the opportunity at UCC for us to be able to reach some people who perhaps wouldn't be with us locally. So we're glad to have a lot of our students. We have some people from the states joining us. Uh, and so we just we're so happy to have everybody here uh, with us this morning. And also... Uh, because we are switched over this new website, that if you missed a teaching or you want to watch it at a later date because you're a bit of a late riser, um, you can go onto the UCC Waterloo website and the video, the full stream will be there so you can watch it uh, later on as well too. So this morning when I continue on, uh, we have decided we're going to go through the book of 1 John. And as I've mentioned before, 1 John <clears throat> is a remarkable book. And the reason it's a remarkable book is because it is a book of... Uh, writing to a church that wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus. And the reason why that's so important is because as much as John is trying to convey to the second generation of Christians the reality and the truth of who Jesus is, we, again, 80 to 101 generations, depending on how you calculate it, we are doing the same thing. We have to have the reality of Jesus in our own lives as we speak. Let's just recap what we talked about last week to make sure we're on the same page. So last week, we actually covered the entire first chapter of 1 John. Now, mind you, it's only 10 verses, but it was still the entire chapter. And remember, 1 John 1, 1 starts off very much like John's gospel. And we took some time to talk about this idea of logos. Remember, logos was this concept within Greek philosophy, and John borrows that concept to start his letter and his gospel to say that Jesus isn't just a human being, but he is divine. And not just divine, but he is creatively divine. Remember, logos was this ab ability to speak into nothing to create something. Right? And for John, that's really important for his readers to understand who Jesus is. And again, we're going we're gonna to go deeper into that this morning, but that was his preface for starting off it. And remember, in 1 John, is this incredibly, um, I don't know how to say it, but just this, this statement, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purifies from all unrighteousness. And I think... That statement in and of itself is something the second generation church and the church today needs to understand. And again, we're going to unpack that more as we go deeper into the letter. But again, this statement here is really important. Now remember, John connects this idea of truth to word, right? For John, it is true to believe what Jesus says about himself and what Jesus says about God and what God will do. And so John really wants to make sure that we connect these 
two concepts. Now, remember we talked about this idea of forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is the intentional seeking of a restored active relationship. And all these words, uh, um, not to be redundant, but are intentional, right? Because you have to want to restore a relationship. You have to have an a- you have to actively do so. And again, this shouldn't be any kind of a, um, a new concept to us. If you had a friendship, uh, a, you know, a, a, a romantic relationship, whatever it would be, you realize there's ups and downs in the relationship. But to restore the relationship, one person has to seek forgiveness of the other or both people. And, and what happens is that act is how you restore the relationship. Because if you don't have that act, what can happen in the relationship is this drift, right? There's a wrong, there's a hurt, and all of a sudden, you know, nobody is seeking forgiveness. No one's asking for reconciliation. And so there's a drift that can take place. And it's also our path to sustained exposure to the divine. And that was the aha moment for me, right? So this idea is that the closer we draw to God, right, the more aware we are of our own brokenness, of our own uh, mistakes, our own fallingness. And again, whatever terminology you want to go. It's like, you know, um, walking towards the sun, right? And of course, you know, you might go blind, but the reality is the sun will expose any imperfections, right? The closer we draw to God, the more we are aware of the darkness that hides in within all of us, right? Again, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christ follower, whether it's one day, maybe you're watching this and you haven't quite even made that decision, but you know that there is something within you that resists the good. And I think most people can kind of um, at least agree on what that good might look like. And so John is wrestling with this, but he's also trying to present this to the early church. Well, this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk about this idea of sin, because John, as he moves into the second chapter, is actually going to spend some time here. And so while last week we, we kind of zipped through the first chapter, this week we're going to actually just stay on two verses for the entire time, because just unpacking those two verses could actually take this entire morning, but I actually was thinking that I could actually do a six-week series just on these two verses. But before we do that, I just want to show you this kind of concept that's kind of emerged within Christianity today. I came across this article by this blogger, and again, I couldn't find his real name. That's how I identify, so uh, that's, that's how I'm going to identify him. But he basically says this, sin is an outdated religious terminology. So in this article, he said this, The word sin is an outdated religious terminology. It doesn't apply to us today. It is only a concept in the Jewish religion, which put them in bondage because they mistakenly thought thought sin separated them from God. The concept of sin came to an offend officially in AD 70 when the Jewish Old Covenant of Law was made obsolete, signified by the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Roman army. Now, I could spend days telling you what's exactly wrong with this statement and what this article says. But what's really important is what he is saying and what others are saying is when we talk about this idea of sin today, it is not really uh, popular, right? Nobody wants to talk about what's wrong. Uh, and, and so Christianity and, and the terminology has kind of shifted. And again, I think there's good reason for shifting as well, too. I think there's layers to it. We use words like failing and brokenness and distance and all these. I think all of these are true, right? But these are kind of other statements that we just need to really understand with this idea of sin. So if you ever told someone, hey, to read your Bible and just to kind of um, Uh, just to kind of go through it, this concept of sin would come up time and time again. And you would have to unpack for these individuals what sin meant. Now remember, last week John says a statement, and honestly, this is a statement that is almost too good to be true. 
If you told somebody that, hey, all you have to do is confess your sins and you're forgiven. Now, just so you know, right, it's in Scripture, right? And, and it's there. John clearly kind of identifies it for us. But if you have been a Christ follower for any amount of time, I don't know if we actually believe this anymore, right? It, it's almost as if we have elevated our sin, our brokenness, our failings, and again, whatever language you want to apply, we've elevated above him beyond who God is. And so remember last week, we talked about chapter one, right? Remember I said to you that chapter one kind of broke down into three aspects of it, right? So we, John starts off his chapter by talking about the divinity, but he gets this part of talking about darkness and light and life. This is the idea of decision, right? But he ends off by talking about forgiveness. Now, remember what I said to you last week, right? You can't have this without this. And the decision really is this aspect of faith. So what is really important to John's conception of forgiveness is is not so much about what God promises, but about what we believe about that statement, our faith that we would place in that statement. So two questions we're going to ask this morning are two questions that I think I, I as a pastor uh, for the last 25 plus years, I hear consistently from, again, as a youth pastor, youth, young adults, but again, from adults as well too. Why would God forgive me? <laughs> right? And again, this is actually a really profound statement. Right? Why would God forgive me? And, and the, fact, the second part is, how can I trust this? right? How can I trust the statement that John just kind of throws out there? I've read it. I've heard it. You know, if you've been part of UCC, I, as your pastor, have mentioned it time and time again. But again, by repetition, by listening to it, hearing it, perhaps the truth and the vitality of it might actually diminish in your life. So to the point where this statement actually just becomes words that we continue to hear. Um, William Barclay, in his commentary on 1 John chapter 2, says this about it. He says, let us first set out the problem. It is clear that Christianity is an ethical religion. That is what John is concerned to stress. But it is also clear that humanity is so often an ethical failure. Confronted with the demands of God, we admit them and accept them and then fail to keep them. Here then, um, here then there is a barrier erected between humanity and God. How can we, the sinner, ever enter into the presence of God, the all-holy? For those of you who perhaps have been joining us for our screw tape letters, one of the concepts we talked about this week, which was a concept in chapter 10, was this idea of hypocrisy, right? And so one of the definitions of hypocrisy can be this uh, concept of what we say and what we do right? And so the disconnect of what we say and what we do, that can be our distance of hypocrisy. However, we learned this week that that's actually not how the Bible defines hypocrisy. And uh, I'm not going to unpack that. Those of you who are part of the group, you know this. And for those of you who weren't, why aren't you? But you can email me and I can give you some more insight into that. But the Bible actually defines hypocrisy differently. But the problem is we all can feel like hypocrites, right? That's the truth of being a Christ follower, we're presented with this beautiful ideal who is Jesus. And we see the early church and its vitality and its love and its care and the constant usage of the term one another, right? Caring for one another, loving one another, praying for one another, lifting up one another's burdens. And we see these ethical standards that are given to us, but we also realize we're so far from that, right? We're so far from that. So how do we uh, reconcile this reality with this truth? And so 
this morning, if you want to, you can turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, and we're only going to spend time in, in verses 1 to 2. And again, for our new website, you can click on the Bible button, and it'll bring up another column, and you can, you can pop it in there, and again, whatever translation you want. Again, one of the reasons why we like the website. But let's take a look at two verses that are going to occupy our time this entire morning because what these two verses say are going to explain the previous chapter, right? Because John's not going to just drop the statement of, if you confess your sins, God is able to forgive and purify. Now, one thing I didn't do last week, because again, first of all, I talk too much, and so there you go. But this idea of forgiveness and purify, right? There's two concepts here. Forgiveness in, in John's understanding is almost like a legal term. And the reason that legal term is important is because John is going to go back into legal's term to explain this, right? So forgiveness is like you're standing before a judge, and the judge pronounces you not guilty. But the secondary part is purify, which means as you leave that part not guilty, the Holy Spirit will continue to change and to transform you in that. Now, remember, Christianity is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And that's one of the problems with Western Christianity. We have made Christianity a sprint. But it's not. It is a lifelong journey. And again, up and down. Uh, again, for those who've been part of the Screwtape Letters, I commented on how the book The Pilgrim's Progress was such a great analogy for this lifelong endeavor. And honestly, the struggle isn't over until we take our last breath. Right? Perfection is never going to be experienced uh, until we are in the presence of God and we are done with sin. Now, let's take a look at what John says after he just drops this huge truth bomb of confession and forgiveness. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, it says this. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is a sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Um. So let's just kind of take a look at the first way John introduces this, right? My little children. Now remember, John is elderly when he's writing this, and he's writing it to his children, right? The second generation. So the phrase, my little children. But what you have to understand as well, too, is that this is an affectionate term, right? Um, it is said that Paul the Apostle is a little bit more uh, cut and dry. He's a little bit more forthright. Uh, that's just a euphemism for saying he doesn't, he doesn't pull any punches when he talks about the gospel. He just, he's, he's upfront about it. Well, John is a bit of a different way of approaching it, right? John has more of a pastoral heart. What I mean by pastoral is he's more of a shepherder. He's more caring about the emotions of it. So he starts off by saying, my dear, my little children, and he's doing so because he's saying that, you know what? He knows he's elderly. He knows he's you know, the, one of the last first generation, if not the last first generation. But what he's about to convey, he's conveying out of a heart of love. You know, children are the second generation who may not believe, even though they desperately want to, the founding truths of Jesus. So what's remarkable with John is John is trying to connect for the second generation the character and nature of who Jesus was by his eyewitness account to what Jesus said. See, for us who are so far displaced from who Jesus was, we can look at Jesus sometimes, and he, he, he has this larger-than-life personality, and that's absolutely true. But for John, John saw Jesus the man. John saw Jesus the sacrifice, and John saw Jesus in the resurrection. So his conception of Jesus was not just about what he said, but he connected it to who he was. And so what John is trying to do for us is he's trying to connect the truths of Christianity back with who 
Jesus was. And really, this letter, is this, that's going to echo time and time again. Now, let's take a look at this idea of sin, right? Because John says, so that you will not sin. What we have to understand about sin, and again, this is just kind of a, a brief overview, is that sin has, in the Bible, and traditionally, four conceptions, right? So first of all, what you need to understand is sin is self-deception. And John talks about this, and he's gonna, we're going to unpack this a little later on. But John says that sin can be self-deception. And by self-deception is this idea of situational ethics. And the idea of situational ethics is simply put, um, in this particular circumstances, this is the right thing to do. But in this other circumstances, this is the right thing to do. So basically, what we do, what we think is right and what is wrong is based upon our emotions, based upon our preferences, right? And that really is the beginning of self-deception, right? Because as soon as you say that, as soon as you acknowledge that, then that leads you down a different path, right? So one of the things that self-deception can teach us is that sin is not my fault, right? Sin is not my fault. Because of the circumstances, I chose this, I did this, but it's not my fault, Right? That's self-deception. The second thing about sin is that it's this idea of debt. My feelings make me feel unworthy of God. See, what is interesting about this idea of sin, and sin has a psychological component. That's what we talked about last week, right? When that one article that we talked about, right? So we said that this article said that those who understand divine forgiveness have a much better mental health, uh, are, are better mentally uh, healthy. Right? So basically this idea that if you realize, if you understand that there is a creator, there is a God that can forgive you, you are more likely to forgive yourself and you're more likely to forgive others. Right? But what John tells us is that we all know the burden and the weight of sin. It's like this emotional, mental weight that we can carry. This idea of separation, sin creates distance from God, right? Sin creates this idea of a distance from God, and we know this, right? The, the first time that we, not the first time, we sin all the time, right? But the sin can be this thing that kind of accumulates, and rather than going to God, it actually creates distance from God. And of course, sin is death, right? Sin upon sin are my steps to my spiritual demise. Need to understand, when the Bible talks this idea of sin is death, it doesn't mean you, you die when you sin. Although I think, not that that would be cool, but that'd be like, oh, I'm not going to do that because that person just dropped dead because of, right? But what the Bible is trying to tell us is step by step, sin upon sin is this gradual process away from God. I love what John Stott said. Before we begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. See, and we're going to unpack this as we, we unwrap a certain word. We'll get to that word in a second. But we have to understand this idea of the cross and the idea of who Jesus is. He, he came, he spoke, he taught, he died because of humanity, because of what we have decided to do every day in our lives. And we resist that sacrifice. We resist the truth of that. But John is trying to help this next generation say, it's there for a reason. And Really, the reality of sin, though, is this part, right? The real problem with sin is its repetible, repetitive, habitual nature. One of the issues, and I would say, and I would propose to you, and I think many of you would, would resonate this, it's not sin we have a problem with. It's the sin that we continue to do. It's the sin that we continue to wrestle with. That is the sin that we have a hard time forgiving ourselves, forgetting, and even removing, right? And that's kind of remarkable if you think about it, right? Because as I've said before, many of you will not, will sin maybe the first time in some area, 
But it's very rarely at this point of our lives that we will do a brand new sin, right? It, it, it's very rare. We will probably do the sins that we've always done, right? And so what happens is it's the habitual sins. It's the repetitive sins. These are the sins that actually bump us. Because these are the sins we wish we could get rid of. These are the sins that we wrestle with. These are the sins we ask for forgiveness for. But because we do it again, this is the, way, this is the reason why we feel like hypocrites. This is the reason why we feel like frauds. This is the reason why we wouldn't go back to God to ask for forgiveness. Because in our minds, we say the same thing. How could God forgive me again? Right? How can God forgive me again? Uh, I love what uh, Kandima Awandila says. She says this, sin destroys our relationship with others, but also our relationship with God. The more we sin, the more it can spiral out of control. It brings fear, guilt, and suffocates us. What I love about this quote is this idea of spiral, right? Sin that isn't confronted, sin that isn't um, confessed, it becomes this spiral, this downward spiral, right? And again, I think the best way to understand sin, and I've made this analogy before, is this idea of an addiction. Sin is best understood like an addiction. Every addict wrestles with day one. A lapse in their abstinence is a reset of their struggle. If you've ever been part of a 12-step program, if you've ever interacted with somebody with a 12-step program, one of the first things they will say when they are in this group is, hi, my name is, and I am 278 days sober. I am three years and 14 days. Like, it's, it's amazing to me how precise they are with their sobriety. And the reason they're so precise with it is because basically what they're trying to say is tomorrow is going to be another day added on to that. But here's the thing. When they relapse, they are reset to day one. Right? They're reset to day one. Well, that's like what we are. Um, on the American Addiction website, what they do is they tell you that there are, are actually three stages of relapse. And the reason I think it's important I want to point these out is because these are the three stages of our sin wrestling. And we're going to look at a passage of scripture that's, that's actually going to capture this as well. So the first stage of, uh, emo- uh, of relapse is emotional relapse. The emotional relapse stage begins long before you pick up a drug or a drink. During this stage, you may begin to fail to cope with your emotions in a healthy way. Oftentimes, what sin is, is self-soothing behavior, right? We do something to feel better about ourselves. And again, it could be physical, it could be mental, it could be emotional, whatever it is, right? But what's saying here is you're coping it not in a healthy way. So you're, you're pondering it, you're thinking about it. The second stage is the mental relapse. You're aware of holding conflicting feelings about sobriety. While a part of you may want to remain sober, another part may be battling cravings and secretly thinking about ways to relapse. This is why within a 12-step program, each person that comes into it is given a sponsor. So when you wrestle with these cravings, when you wrestle with this, this part of it, you call your sponsor and saying, listen, I'm thinking about taking a drink, or I'm thinking about taking this drug, or I'm thinking upon acting upon this behavior. And this, your, your sponsor will either, you'll meet with them or they'll just speak with you if they're not able to meet and hopefully talk you down from that relapse. And the final stage is a physical relapse. Stage involves the final action of actually using drugs or alcohol. What begins as an initial lapse of having one drink or drug can quickly proceed to a full-blown relapse where you feel that you have little or no control over using. Now, what's important about this stage and what an, an addict understands is once you relapse, you hate yourself. There's, this, there's a great deal of self-loathing. 
And so you said, oh, so I've made this mistake, then, then forget it. I'm just going to continue. And that's why one relapse can lead to a whole string of relapses and a whole string of, 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 of moving in the wrong direction in regards to sobriety is because once you've done it, you think to yourself, well, I'm a failure, right? I'm a failure. It's impossible for me to get over this. Therefore, I'm just going to continue in this behavior. And that's why they talk about these ideas of relapse. Now, again, if you're watching this and you have an addiction, it's important to remember this, but everybody watching this, you and I, we all are addicted to sin. And it wouldn't be wonderful if we were only addicted to one sin. The fact is we are wrestling with a whole host of them, right? And that can be what, and I, and I don't want to oversimplify this because maybe you are sitting there watching this, whether now or at a later date, you think to yourself, well, you have no idea, pastor, of all the things, plural, that I wrestle with. And my response to you is, yeah, me too. We all do, right? We, we, we wrestle with habitual repetitive sins, but again, in the plural form, not just the one. Now, remember I told you that this is actually picked up by a writer of the scriptures, and that's a guy by the name of James, James, the brother of Jesus. You know, in James chapter 1, you know, at the very beginning of the chapter, James uses a cycle, right? Remember, we've, we've talked about this, right? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of all kind. We know that cycle, but what people may not realize is Jim, Jim, <laughs> I'm so close with James, I call him Jimmy. No, James actually contrasts that cycle with another one, and the cycle of, uh, the other cycle he contrasts, this idea of Pure, uh, of trials and maturity is of sin and temptation. Now look what he says. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death, right? This is the cycle of, of, of relapse we just talked about, right? But James just captures it in such a way, right? It's basically saying when you give your, temp- like remember, temptation isn't sin. Right? Temptation isn't sin. Because remember what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. He was tempted, yet did not sin. Temptation is when we entertain the possibility, the thinking of sin. Right? So temptation isn't sin. It is the beginning cravings. It's the beginning urgings. It's the beginning of emotional or mental uh, relapse. Right? And look what he says here. Right? It comes from our own desires, and it entices us and drags us away. Right? It's, it's speaking to us. Oh, just go ahead. Just, just do it. No, nobody will care. Nobody will know. It doesn't matter. Right? These, are the, these are the inner cravings that go in our head. These desires give birth to sinful actions, right? and that's the physical relapse. Once we've, we've thought about something, once we, we, we think about it over and over and over again, once we allow that temptation to, just to ga- gather strength, we will act on it unless we are able to confront it, speak it out, ask somebody else, to be able to kind of come, come, uh, come alongside of us and say, hey, listen, I know you're struggling with it, but let's walk through this together. This week, this past week in our screw tape letters, I said to our group that one of the biggest tragedies of the Western church is the lack of authenticity, right? The lack of vulnerability. The ability to say, you know, this is what I struggle with and I just, I need somebody to come alongside and help me. Now, mind you, in the pandemic and our lockdowns, that becomes more difficult, but again, there's no reason why FaceTime, phone call, texting is not a, an ability to reach out to somebody and say, listen, I'm struggling, right? This is how we confront sin. 
Now, let's go back to uh, uh, 1 John chapter 2, and this is the backdrop that I want you to understand what John's about to say, right? That's, this is basically what chapter 1 is, is saying in 1 John. Now, look at the first two verses of chapter 2, because now we need to dig deeper in this, right? So, look what John says here, if anyone does sin. Now, the reason why this is so important to John is he's making assumption, right? The problem... My wife always says to me, don't say the problem of the church. One of the mistakes the church has made is to portray our sins as something that we can easily overcome. Now, my prayer and my hope is that as we grow in maturity, we will wrestle less and less with some of the sins. Now, some of the sins we will struggle with till the day we die. And we have to be okay with that because that is part of of our journey, right? But what I love what the Bible does is the Bible makes an assumption. The assumption is this, you and I, we're weak, right? Look what John says back in the last chapter. If we claim we have no sin, we are fooling ourselves, right? Fooling and and this concept of self-deception, right? Remember I said to you that sin is self-deception, right? If we claim perfection, if we portray perfection, if we say, oh no, I've got it all together, he's saying you're fooling yourself, right? Look what the writers of Hebrews says. The high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of the gracious God. There, will be, there we will receive his mercy and we'll find grace to help us when we need it most. Look at this. Weaknesses, right? Plural. This is important. And the reason why this is important is this is part of Christianity we've forgotten. God does not look at us and expect us to figure it all out. There is nothing instantaneous about Christianity. It is a... When I was working with an addict, he said to me that the only way he can deal with his addiction is by grinding it out. And for grinding it out is every day, it's just, it's just he has to get through the day. Now, he did say, though, that he's been grinding it out for four years. And the first six months was, was almost uh, excruciatingly painful. But four years in, right... He's still wrestling with the, temp- the cravings, but he's, he's, he's having more and more uh, victory over it, right? So what's interesting is, <clears throat> is the writer of Hebrews says, is that the high priest of ours, he understands. See, one of the lies the enemy says to us when we sin, when we fall is, oh, is, is, is God, God didn't see this coming, or God cannot forgive you, or that how, how, how can this actually happen? Look at Psalm 103, 14. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers that we are only dust. You know what I love about scriptures? Is that in it is a very accurate portrayal of the human condition. Right? And I just want to be, as your pastor, I want to make sure I'm conveying to you the entirety of scripture. And the Bible tells us, God tells us, yeah, he knows we're going to mess up. Right? He knows we're going to mess up. The assumption isn't that we're not going to mess up. The assumption is that we are going to mess up. And so John, when he says in the, fr- in the first verse there, is that if anyone does sin, right? He doesn't want us to sin, but if anyone does sin, and the Bible's right there, right? Now look what he says about this idea of advocate. Remember I told you this, this legal aspect of it? First, let's, uh, let, me, let, me, let me show you the understanding of advocate in regards to Jesus. You know, it's funny, the book of Job is one of the first ideas as this advocate. Look what Job says. Remember, Job didn't even know the reality of Jesus, but when he's looking at his creator, when his entire life has fallen apart, when his friends have said to him, this is your fault, when his wife has said to him, a delightful woman, curse God and die, Job says this in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 19, for, for even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is there on high. 
This is a beautiful picture of Jesus whom Job didn't even know, right? Now, remember, I told you, Job is the oldest book in the Bible, right? Job was written sometime after chapter 4 of Genesis, right? So in that earliest conception of who God is, Job believed that there was somebody in heaven who was advocating for him. And Romans chapter 8, verse 34, who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. You know, the image I have, again, I've said this before, right? Let's go back to the cosmic courtroom, right? The cosmic courtroom is God the judge, and he stands before us, and open before him is basically every misdeed, every sin that we've ever committed. And there's the accuser, the prosecution, right? And the prosecution is the enemy. Well, our defender, right, our defense attorney is Jesus, right? It's Jesus, and he is pleading for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. So, Again, the image you need to understand here, the image that John is trying to portray to the next generation is Jesus is not a passive relationship. Jesus is actively interceding on our behalf, advocating on our behalf. Now, another thing you need to understand here is the word that John uses for advocate in the ancient world was the opposite of the accuser. See, it's a beautiful image that John is trying to create. Again, in legal terms, right? So John says that Jesus is our advocate. Well, the Bible tells us that the opposite of an advocate is the accuser. And remember, the accuser isn't accusing of us, accusing us of what isn't true. Remember, I've used this analogy before. If the devil would say to me, you know, Roger Stone, you are a puppy, puppy kicker. My dog Rosie is over here. She's fast asleep, and you know maybe some of you are falling asleep as well too. I get that, right? But I could say to the devil, I have never kicked Rosie in my entire life. My wife, who may be watching this, Sarah, I've never, I've never kicked Rosie. Just to be clear. So if the enemy comes to me and says you're a puppy kicker, my response is, No, I'm not. This is ridiculous. But that, but the accuser's too smart for that. He doesn't accuse us of lies. He accuses us of truth. Now, truth that is misrepresented, but still true. The accuser knows how to get to me. And you know how he gets to me? You know how he gets to you? He, remu- he reminds you of what is true. Right? He reminds you of what is true. Because the truth is almost more painful than the lie to us. Now, again, just to be clear, the enemy takes the truth and twists it. The enemy portrays the truth without hope. Jesus portrays the truth with hope. And we'll get to that in a second. You know, it's funny that in Revelation chapter 12 is this idea, this, in Revelation 12, he says this, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been, has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. So on the one hand, Jesus is there and he's saying, listen, I know this one. He, she, they are, you know, they're wrestling with this. And the accuser is like, you should, you should just smite them, God. They're not worthy of your love. They're not worthy of your grace. And again, It's unfortunate that we have a tendency to listen to the accuser more than we listen to the advocate, right? Now, here's the problem, right? At this, and this is the crux. By the way, uh, crux, right? It's Latin for cross. Fun fact. 
here is the crux of the problem. We want to draw close to God, but we know that we are, we know what we are, and we know what we've done. The voice of the accuser is always in our head. This is a hidden side of sin. If the voice of the accuser is not confronted, then what we have done becomes a wall, brick by brick, between us and God. See, if we only listen to the accuser, then we forget about the divine act of forgiveness. If we only listen to the enemy, and the enemy will always tell us, he'll always remind us of, of the mistakes we've made, of the, of the sins we do. And again, in my opinion, it's the habitual, repetitive ones that he uses the most, because these are the ones that hurt us the most, right? This is the problem, right? If we only listen to the accuser, if we only listen to the enemy, then we will, we will live a life, we will live a Christianity without hope. And the Christianity without hope is a, is, is a Christianity without forgiveness, a Christianity without reconciliation, a Christianity without redemption. So here, 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 here's where it comes to it. John's going to bring up the one great word, and, and I've already talked about this, right? Atonement, right? John says that Jesus is a sacrifice that atones. And so John is now going to bring into this conception a Old Testament word, right? So the word atonement comes from the old English concept at one meant. Right? Now, at one minute simply means is bringing together in unity things that were so far apart. An act that brings together unity those who have been estranged, separated, and divorced. Right? So atonement is a very ancient word. And again, um, I went back to my soteriology six notes, which is the, doc uh, the doctrine of salvation. Soteriology is a doctrine of salvation. And I looked through this concept of atonement, and we spent almost the entire semester unpacking this word atonement. Now, there are so many conceptions of it, and, uh, and I'm not going to go there, right? As a matter of fact, for so many of you, if you have a different translation, there's words like propitiation that's used. And if you look at the word propitiation, you're like, what the heck does that mean, right? Now, remember, I use the NLT. Uh, I, I like the NLT. If you've ever asked yourself, what's a good translation? My recommendation is the NLT. And the NLT uses a sacrifice that atones because I think what they're trying to convey is a word that's more understood and also bringing into it uh, Old Testament connotations to help us understand that. Now, atonement is this concept where John says, listen, you are far from God. And your actions are what creates that distance. And again, the four things I talked about sin, right? Whether it's distance, whether it's weight, whether it's, it's all, these, all these conceptions, right? This is what sin does. And so sin drives us from God. Look at Adam and Eve. The first couple to sin, right? When God comes to them, they hide. That's what we do. Sin makes us hide. We hide from God. That's what we do. As if we could hide from God, right? That's... That's the kind of joke of the, the whole conversation. But that's the way we look at it. So John says that Jesus is the sacrifice that brings us back into unity with God. Now, in the book of Romans, Paul is going to really expand this concept of atonement. And Romans 5, verses 8 to 9 says this. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we are still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Now, it's really important to understand something here, okay? While we are still sinners, you know, what I find so interesting, and I remember talking to somebody, this is a while ago, where I invited them to come to church. And they said this to me, I'll come to church when I get my life together. And my response is, oh, then you'll never come to church. And they kind of look at me offended. I said, here's the deal. You'll never get your life together. 
even when you think your life is together, there's something that'll happen that'll unravel that, that togetherness that you think, right? For some reason, people think the church is a place they go to when they have it together or when they figure things out. Well, in Jesus' conception of the church, the church is a place where you go as a mess, right? You go and you bring your entire messiness of your life and you present it to God and to a community that is gracious and merciful, or at least supposed to be, right? That was Jesus' conception. That was Paul's conception. That's also John's conception of this concept of God's mercy and Jesus' sacrifice, but also a community that, that endorses that. So we are made right in God's sight. On the one hand, we know that God knows the things that we have failed him. But on the other hand, Paul and John and the entirety of the gospel is, and again, gospel, good news, is that even while we are still sinning, Christ died for us. And not just died for us, right? He made us right in God's sight. Uh, Dr. Stephen DeYoung, when he talks about this idea of sin, this is what he says. In fact, the entirety of the commandments of the Torah is a means of dealing with sin and related contamination in order to allow Yahweh to remain in the midst of his people. See, when you look at the Old Testament and you look at Israel, right, the book of Leviticus and Numbers and all these, uh, all, all these laws, Deuteronomy, um, uh, these laws were given to the people so that God could have interaction with them. But remember, God can't interact with the sinful. So that's why the sacrifice system, that's why the, 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 <laughs> the mountain upon mountain of sacrifices were there. Why? Because what God wants more than anything, he wants to be in relationship with us. But he won't be in relationship with us based upon a lie. He won't be in a relationship with us based upon self-deception. And so what's important here is what John is trying to convey is Jesus is the atonement. Jesus brings us into right relationship. Now, remember, Jesus brings us into right relationship. You don't bring yourself into right relationship. There is nothing about you that is as special and powerful that you can bring yourself into alignment. And God knew this. This is why Jesus came. Because humanity, after thousands of years of sacrifices, of, of, of the 613 laws that the Jewish people created, of all this stuff, we were still as far from God as we were in the very beginning. So Jesus comes along and says, listen, let me give you the shortcut. And the shortcut is through me. Right? The shortcut is through me. Um, uh, Nancy uh, Lay DeMoss says it this way. To believe that our sin is too much for God is to underestimate the power of the cross. See, and this is the part that I always try to remind people about. That habitual sin, that repetitive sin that you wrestle with, somehow what you've done is you have made that sin greater than God. I just want you to pause and to think about that for a second. Whatever your sin is, whatever your sins are, somehow you believe the lie that these things are greater than God. You know, back in, I think it was grade 8, uh, we were learning the universe and the cycles of the sun and the moon and all that stuff. I can't remember any of it. But our science teacher did say something. He said, you know, he, he gave us a challenge. He goes, he had a penny back in the day when we had pennies. And he held it up in his hand in the classroom and says, how can this penny block out the sun? And so, of course, smart Alex says, we need a billion pennies or a trillion pennies or whatever it be. He goes, no, no, no. Here's how the penny can block out the sun. And he held the penny right up to his eye. And he says, this penny now is bigger than the sun. Not because it is actually bigger than the sun, because it's a matter of focus now. 
And I've always remembered that because that is like what my sin is for me. I know intellectually my sin isn't greater than God. But what can happen is, is, if, this is if this penny is my, my entire focus, then this penny, this sin, can somehow blot out an infinite God. And that's the lie that the enemy wants us to believe. He wants you to believe, he wants me to believe that whatever sin I wrestle with, whatever sins I wrestle with, these are greater than God. But of course they're not greater than God. How can something I've done be greater than the infinite creator of the universe? The same person that says, I hold the universe in my hands. And again, that's a whole conceptualization I can't even wrap my head around. That same creator, he is greater than the sum total of our sins. And you know what's interesting? Not to get all quantum mechanics on you, but God doesn't actually exist in time. He exists outside of time. Finite creatures, we exist in time. We exist on a linear way of understanding time, right? Today, yesterday, tomorrow. These are a linear understanding of time. But God says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm, I'm outside of time. So when God forgives you, please understand something. He's not just forgiving you now. He knows what you're going to do in the future. He knows your future. He knows the sins you'll commit in the future. And yet, he still says, I will forgive you right now. Again, that should give you a headache to think about the, the, the conceptualization of that. God's forgiveness isn't just simply about the immediate. It's also future tense. And you don't even know what you'll do in the future. You think you do, but you don't. Sometimes we think to ourselves, um, oh, I know, you know what I'm capable of. I just want you to know, no, you don't. Um, I think it was back in uh, it was back in third year in Bible college. Um, I, 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 I audited a, a philosophy class at uh, Trent University, and uh, Trent University was up the up the street from our school. And the philosophy class, I was invited uh, by some of the students who I had met uh, through a uh, um, a on uh, an on, on, on campus church group that uh, some of the students were a part of, and, and I was a part of it. And uh, so the philosophy, the question in the philosophy class is, um, could you commit a murder? Now, most people, if you ask them, could you kill somebody? The answer flat out is no. But what's interesting in this philosophy class is they start bringing all these scenarios up. And one scenario was, um, you're protecting your son or your daughter, or your children, and a madman breaks in and you have a gun. Would you shoot them? And, and most people would say, yes, I'd protect my children. Well, that's a circumstance by which you would kill somebody. And what was interesting is you walk through this class and the teacher began all, bringing all these scenarios up. At the beginning, people said, no, no, I would never kill somebody. But by the end of it, we were all murderers. And the simple part is, you think you know the circumstances that your life is going to take, and you do not. And because the circumstances will change, our ethics, remember at the very back to William Barclay, our ethics are, uh, are, going, to e- are going to be tested, Right? Life is nothing but a series of tests. I know it sucks, right? Because who would like to be tested? But the testing isn't about our knowledge of God. Our testing is, do we actually believe what God says about himself? And so John tries to help us understand something. Now, it doesn't end there. The final part of the verse is all the world. 
John's view of Jesus is that the entire world benefits from what he did. Let's go back to John 3.16. Remember, this goes back to John's gospel. John's letter is written with his gospel in mind as well too. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Right? John believes that Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' work and his act, it's, it's for us but it's for even for those who don't believe in Jesus yet. It's for those who perhaps have not yet embraced the truth of Jesus. And this is why he says, right? Um, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him. Again, this is the part here. And I'll ex- let me explain this to you. Let's go back to the two questions we asked. Why would God forgive me? And how can I trust this? Well, the answer to the first part is, is because he, God, has made it his contractual obligation. Remember, John isn't saying God's going to forgive you of everything. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is if we confess our sins, right? That's, that's the important part to remember here. And that if is bigger than we imagine because if we don't want to, if we're hiding from God, if the sin has gone on for a long period of time, right? This is the part that John wants to understand, right? If, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe the truth of Jesus, it's this act of faith, right? The, the, and again, go back to the writer of Hebrews chapter 11, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why would God forgive me? Because he has a contractual obligation. And a contractual obligation not with us, but with himself through Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, legal, purify us, process, Right? But the second part is, how can I trust this? Look to the cross to see how serious he is about it. You know, there have been so many movies about Jesus' life, and, you know, from the Passion of the Christ to other ones, right? And again, every director has a hard time capturing the crucifixion. And I remember uh, when, when Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, apart from what Mel Gibson is today, back then when he was portraying it, and his emphasis was the brutality that was inflicted upon Jesus. And people have said, well, I don't know if that's true or not. And again, I'm not here to argue the, the validity or not. The important thing for Mel Gibson was, back when he was trying to do that, was he was trying to convey how much pain and suffering Jesus went through before the cross. And again, that's true. The Bible tells us time and time again. And again, the Romans knew how to torture somebody up to the point of killing him. That's what the cross was all about. It was a prolonged way to kill somebody. Basically, you drowned in your own fluids. But people have looked at that and have made mistaken pronouncements about that, right? So for people who are like, you know, Jesus is lovey-fuzzy and, 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 and loves everybody and all that, he does. But they look to the cross and they say, well, that's a God of, that's the Old Testament God. Oh, I love that statement. People say, oh, that's the Old Testament God. Again, go back to our beginning <coughs> of, uh, of that commentator, right? Sin is outdated. When you look to the cross and you look upon Jesus hanging upon the cross, it is brutal. It is bloody. It is horrifying. And it's supposed to be. I never want to rob the cross of that horror because that's how seriously God thinks about sin. You can never escape it. As brutal as it was, that's what God thinks about sin. How can I trust this? Look to, look to the cross. Right? Look to the cross. How can you not trust it? Let me close 
A.W. Tozer, again, somebody who I enjoy and I read uh, quite a bit. A.W. Tozer has this quote. Again, it's a long one. Be patient, I'll read it with you. But I've emphasized something here. Look what A.W. Tozer says. Jesus Christ came not to condemn you, but to save you. Knowing your name, knowing all about you, knowing your, what, your weight right now, knowing your age, knowing what you do, knowing where you live, knowing what you ate for supper and what you will eat for breakfast, where you will sleep tonight, how much your clothing costs, who your parents were. He knows you individually as though there were not another person in the entire world. He died for you as certainly as if you had been the only lost one. He knows the worst about you and is the one who loves you the most. What I love so much about this quote is the knowing. Remember this idea of self-deception? Even, even if no one ever knows what you do or what you go through, God does. And I love how A.W. Tozer takes all this time to say, just so you know, just to be clear here, there isn't an aspect of your life that God isn't aware of. And again, as I want to say to you in a quantum mechanics type of way, not just now, but in the future. Not just now, but also in your past. And, and please hear me, I don't mean to diminish your sin. I don't mean to diminish the hurt and the pain that you've gone through. That is not my intent. But I also don't want to elevate your sin either. I don't want you to think your sin is everything. Because as soon as you think your sin is everything, you've put a penny up to your eye and you've blotted out the incredibleness of who God is. John is trying to connect for the second generation of the church the character and nature of who Jesus is. And I can just hear John saying, you know, I know you think this is crazy to say, if we confess our sins, he is able and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. He's, a, he's able to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I know John's thinking to himself, you don't believe me that that's true. But man, you should have seen Jesus when he was with us. You should have, you should have walked with him. Even Luke's gospel at the end of it says, I couldn't even tell you of all the books I could write about who Jesus was, of what he did. We don't, we're not even told all the things he did, but John was on eyewitness, and John saw Jesus forgive and love people who the world would say were unlovable and unforgivable. John saw Jesus, the divine word, the logos of God, encounter these people, look at these people, and love them. And not just love them, forgive them. He knows the worst about you, and is the one who loves you the most. That's always been my definition of true love, right? Not love as Hollywood portrays it, not love as music, musicians sing about it, but love as the Bible says it. And the love the Bible says it is, is truth. And the truth is that we are sinners. We're sinners saved by grace, but we're sinners. And yet God loves us completely in spite of that sin. Let's close where we started. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is a sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. That's tattoo worthy, just to be clear. Okay, That is... That almost, I feel like every church should have this sign up there, right? Like, like this, is, this, is, this is what our faith is based upon. And this is why John uses this little section to follow up from his previous chapter. Because it's almost too good to be true to think that God will forgive me every time. Every time. Every time I confess my sins to him. It's contractual. If I confess my sins to Jesus, 
He is able. He will forgive me and purify me. He will forgive me and purify me. This is the truth the enemy doesn't want us to know. This is the truth the enemy tries to convince us isn't true. This is the beauty of who Jesus is. This is the beauty of, of who he was when he walked amongst us. And this is what we've forgotten. And even right now during this pandemic and this lockdown, we're, we are wrestling with being at home all the time, being away from a community, being away from all that stuff. This is something that can kind of disappear as well. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whether now or a later date, God loves you. He doesn't love you because of the lies you tell yourself. He loves you because of the truth of who you are. The broken, messy life that you live. The broken, messy life that I live. Jesus loves us. He does ask us. He does require something of us. And that's just simple confession. This is why I love something about Catholicism is this, this act of confession and penance. They've kind of enshrined it, and, and we Protestants have kind of forgotten that. But there's something cathartic, something beautiful about actually confessing your sins to somebody else, right? And then receiving forgiveness. Now, we don't have to go to a priest. We don't have to go into a confessional booth. But this, that act is so important. It's, it's, it's core to our relationship with God. Don't believe the accuser's life. Uh, don't believe the accuser's lies. Don't believe that you're unforgivable. Don't believe that your repetitive habitual sins are too far from God for forgiveness. As soon as you believe that, you believe the accuser, which is going to tell you a truth, but twist it into a lie. Our advocate, right? The beauty thing about the advocate is the advocate is not telling the father that we haven't sinned. The advocate tells the father, he will take the consequences of our sins, right? The father looks at us and says, guilty. Our advocate, our defense lawyer, stands up and says, and I'll accept the punishment. That's the beauty of who Jesus is. That's the beauty that John is trying to convey to this next generation. And that's the beauty that I want just to grip you wherever you are, whatever you're going through. That's what I want you to remember. If you confess your sins, he is able to forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. God, please forgive us when we stray away from your word. Please forgive us when we think that we know everything. Lord, for everybody watching this right now, maybe even right now, that they will confess their sins, the darkest, deepest ones, they would not even dare tell their closest friend. Jesus, I pray, pray that they would confess that sin to you right now. And they would receive your forgiveness in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just shine the light so brightly so that our sin does not eclipse our creator. Please forgive us for listening to the accuser. And Jesus, please help us to listen to you, our advocate. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stick with us. We have one more song, and I'll be back at the end for some announcements. <laughs>